The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. who rules over you simply by announcing you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the regular weekly visit of my good friend, great researcher, missionary Dr Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And um, today we're going to continue with uh, Peter's study of the Bad War, M.S. King's The Bad War. This is going to be the real story behind The Bad War by M.S. King, Part 6. And Mike is aware of this series, and we've been in communication, and he will be on the show with me, I think, uh, later this month or next month. I've got him booked in, I know that. So uh, he'll be coming up. But, Peter, where would you like to start us off today with Part 6? Well, we are in, basically, uh, September of... 1940 in the early part of the war and you know the the standard narrative that we've all been fed um force fed over and over um both in school textbooks and uh, so-called news documentaries and of course hollywood films is that america was there peacefully minding their own business and then they got dragged into the war with this day of infamy and you know complete shock and no one could anticipate and uh, well the bad war um documents that uh, in fact it was not that simple and the narrative is less than honest the full title is the bad war the truth never taught about world war ii and ms king's done us all a great service in putting in one volume um a multitude of uh, various research sources in and this is what many people need is just a short introduction to let them know what really happened what's the other side um and uh, fill in a piece because so much just seems to happen in the way history is presented to us and they don't tell us why or what the context is. Well, here's an interesting thing, that uh, in September the 16th, 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt instituted the first ever peacetime draft in America. They were at peace and they organized a draft, a national call-up, which is strange, uh, although publicly insisting American boys will not be going to foreign wars. Um, and they called it a selective service, but all males between 26 and 35 had to register for the upcoming draft. And uh, they started to draft uh, people and started to arrest people who were evading the draft, which is quite extreme if you're really neutral and if you're not planning to get involved in the war. And there's a picture postcard here 
in the book of a 1940 postcard mocking Franklin Delano Roosevelt for laughing as he signed the draft bill. And this peacetime draft was very unpopular. And uh, the title of this postcard is What's the Joke? And it shows uh, FDR apparently bursting out in hilarity and while he's signing this, this uh, draft. Well, interestingly, at this particular moment, September, um, with America starting a draft, Germany and Japan uh, organize a, a, a alliance, uh, and it was later to include Italy. So the three main anti-communist countries in the world, Germany, Japan, and Italy, uh, they are now related in a tripartite pact. And Germany, Japan, and Italy agreed to assist one another with all political, economic, and military means if one of the contracting nations is attacked by a nation not presently involved in the European war or in the Japanese-Chinese conflict. And they hoped to keep America out of the war by this, but um, in fact, nothing could keep America out of the war because they were already in it. And uh, we didn't really know that as well until Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed Secret History of America's Involvement in World War II and its Aftermath uh, documented that in fact FDR and his administration were putting up the Poles, the French, the British, everyone to this war right from the beginning, promising all sorts of things. Not that they delivered. I mean, the poor Poles were abandoned and Poland didn't get a bandage or uh, bullet uh, from the uh, Allies at all as they were invaded uh, from two sides and carved up and most of Poland being swallowed up by the Soviet Union, who became an ally of Britain, France and the United States anyway. So it seemed that they weren't sincere in their concern for Poland. Well, interestingly, considering the fact that the Soviet Union had invaded so many countries in just an eight-month period, 1939 to 1940, where they first invaded Poland, then they invaded Finland, then Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and then they stole a chunk of Romania, uh, Moldova. Well, bearing in mind that Romania is an oil-producing country, and the plus the oil fields were absolutely vital for Germany's survival and war effort and independence because they're, of course, facing a blockade by sea by the Royal Navy. And therefore, uh, Germany and Romania came up with a, a peace treaty uh, of mutual support uh, in order to protect Romania from obvious Soviet aggression right on their borders. And so uh, we have the Romanian leader, Antonescu, uh, visiting uh, Berlin and uh, signing an agreement where Germany would give protection to Romania, who felt awfully vulnerable uh, from the Red Army, who were dangerously close to the Plosky oil fields. In fact, they could bomb it. Uh, they were that close uh, with the with the aircraft having taken a good chunk of Romanian territory already aggressively in 1940. So German troops started to arrive to protect the oil fields from the Soviet threat uh, of the Red Army. Now, at the same time, October 1940, uh, Britain promised a new world order to Jews after the war. And this is kind of like the Balfour Declaration type of thing, because uh, while Germany is in total control of continental Europe, and um, as the British reached out to international Jews for help, uh, as they had in the First World War, and as the Balfour Declaration promised Palestine to the Jews in exchange for bringing America into the First World War, now Lord Arthur Greenwood's declaration offered them a new world order. 
And Greenwood makes an amazingly prophetic statement. When we have achieved victory, and we assuredly shall, in the rebuilding of civil society after the war, there should and will be a real opportunity for Jews everywhere to make a distinctive and constructive contribution. And so what the British leader uh, Greenwood was saying is that, and here's the minister without portfolio in the British war cabinet, he assured the Jews of the United States that when victory is achieved, an effort would be made to found a new world order, which would include the Jews getting their land in Palestine. And uh, so basically what uh, Lord Greenwood's message was, is get America involved in the war overtly and we'll give you a say in Europe's affairs after the war. And uh, of course, Britain lost the empire immediately after the war because that was one of America's requirements in Britain getting involved, uh, America getting involved in Britain's war. And that was that Britain gives the American markets, uh, American access to the markets of the British colonies and uh, also for raw materials. So while Britain pays the actual sustaining expenses for all the colonies, America gets the benefits through markets and through raw materials. And uh, that's what made running the empire completely uneconomical if they didn't get economic benefits from all the investment they're putting in for building the roads, the railways, the bridges, the dams, and all the rest of it, and maintaining the security in these places, then uh, what was the point? And so the United States already had a plan to dismantle the British Empire and to do it by this economic means. And in fact, Britain had to hand over a lot of islands and raw materials and resources, and South Africa to ship all its gold over to the United States in order for the United States to let Lend-Lease start to pour weapons into Britain in violation of America's laws against supplying weapons to a uh, party involved in a war overseas. So here we've got a New York Times headline, which is New World Order Pledged to Jews. That's October the 6th, 1940, with Arthur Greenwood's promise. At this point, 28th of October, Italy invaded Greece. Now, that actually put the cat amongst the pigeons in many ways. Italy had occupied uh, Albania for some time, and Albania bordered on Greece, and so Mussolini, trying to rebuild his Roman Empire ideas, turned his ambitions towards Greece, which had at one time been part of the Roman Empire. And he invaded, and Germany was not informed, despite uh, Germany and Italy being in, in uh, alliance, but whatever the reason was of Mussolini not informing him, maybe uh, he was trying to get back on Germany acting without Italy's involvement uh, or with the Polish situation or with, with France. So Italy now invades Greece, and this is completely unrelated to Germany's uh, war and uh, creates unexpected problems to uh, to Germany because the Greeks actually repelled the invasion and the British now poured vast amounts of troops into Greece. And so Churchill had an opening on the European mainland from what he called the soft underbelly of Europe to advance towards Germany and especially eastwards towards Romania and the crucial oil fields which supplied Germany because Greece is only one country away from Romania. There's just Bulgaria between Greece and Romania and the Romanian oil fields. So now the British forces are pouring into Greece uh, to help them repel the attack from Italy. And this creates a major problem. And uh, November 1940, we see Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins re-election in, uh, in America. 
with, uh, it in fact was a very fraudulent type of election in November 1940 in America because the globalists put up a straw man, well, Wendell Wilkie. Most people don't even know the name anymore because throughout the election year of 1940, nationalist Republicans were warning that Franklin Delano Roosevelt is plotting to bring America into the war. And the public was strongly opposed to getting involved in another war. They'd lost over 100,000 men for no good reason in the First World War, which all it had done is expand the British and French empires, and it had destroyed the Russian Empire and brought the Soviet Union to power. So what good was that? And they felt like everything they did in the First World War was on the base of lies. And that's why the Democrats lost on every level and were kicked out of the White House, out of the Congress, out of the Senate, and Republicans swept the board in the 1920 elections. So now in 1940, people are saying, wait a minute, FDR is heading back the way Woodrow Wilson did, promising we'll never get you into war, but working towards it while we got the draft and so on. And so Franklin Delano Roosevelt, during his speech, gave his famous again and again speech. I will say this to you mothers and fathers, and I will say it to you again and again and again, your boys will not be sent into any foreign wars. And on that basis, the globalist wing of the government of the people, uh, so-called GOP, Republican Party, hijacked the nominating process, put up an unknown patsy ex-Democrat called Wendell Wilkie to run against FDR. And the Republicans were generally shocked when their party, supported by the media's hyper-Wilkie, anointed a New York lawyer who had never held any office. And Wilkie ran a very half-baked campaign, lost badly, and he was evidently set up as a patsy in order to help FDR win because any decent nationalist against the internationalist globalist policies of um, FDR would have had a very good chance of winning. But FDR is now elected to an unprecedented third term and later fourth term. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave Wilkie a job as an ambassador. So, uh, and immediately after this, Wilkie published a new book entitled One World. So Wendell Wilkie was a fraudulent uh, candidate. He was an instant Republican. He was an ex-Democrat who became a Republican, who later went back to being a Democrat, and uh, who became um, a staff member of um, the very man he was meant to run against, which was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So that was a case of a fraudulent election where they put up someone who was just set up to lose, and that was his only purpose, and he was heavily rewarded. That was November 1940 elections in, in America, still more than a year away from America's formal involvement in the war. November 1940, the Vatican presented peace proposals to British officials from Germany. And uh, so the Vatican had been asked to mediate. They'd already tried Switzerland and Sweden ambassadors trying to negotiate with Britain 15 different peace proposals. And here's another one. And uh, the Vatican sought peace, sought to end the war. And uh, here's one of the quotes on it. The nature of the concessions that the German Führer was prepared to make in order to obtain peace with Britain must have astounded the men uh, in the British war cabinet. There was not even a deal worked out through a process of hard negotiation. It was the opening gambit, an offer so generous, so pragmatic, it would be tempting for anyone who genuinely wanted peace. Uh, the offers of peace from Germany were so remarkable and uh, this was perceived by Churchill as threatening because if the peace terms became public, <coughs> it had the potential to render British resolve to stand firm to a shuttering halt. 
And this is the point that if the British soldiers knew that they were fighting for no good reason, um, why would they want to make the sacrifice? Because everything that they were doing was in the on the basis that Germany had plans to invade Britain and want to take away empire. And, and so, you know, people like my own father were mobilized um, as part of the Rhodesian to to protect the empire because uh, Germany was threatening the whole British empire. Whereas on the contrary, Germany did not want to destabilize the British empire, had therefore let the entire British army escape at Dunkirk uh, after a very dramatic defeat uh, in Europe, uh, instead of annihilating them or taking them all into captivity on the beaches of, of Dunkirk and uh, let them flee. And the German high command, of course, objected, but Hitler's famous stop order was because he said, and he gave a big speech afterwards on the importance of Britain to civilization, to the stability of the world, and that we mustn't unstabilize it, and so on. So now uh, Britain's being offered a peace terms that basically will withdraw from all the countries in the West if you just sign peace treaty and stop your bombing and uh, um, stop the naval blockade. We're demanding nothing from you. Um, and this is at a point when Germany is completely victorious on the continent. And it was very generous offers. They were asking for absolutely nothing except a cessation of hostilities. And they were promising to withdraw from all the countries in the West, like Belgium, France, Netherlands, uh, so that there would be no more um, hostility on the Western Front. And therefore, everything that was achieved by D-Day and so on years later could have been done without any loss of further life, uh, especially from the British side, but even from, from the German side too there. Well, at this point, February 1941, uh, the uh, Italians did a pretty disastrous attack on Britain and uh, it failed. Uh, the, the Italian forces in Libya uh, tried to attack the British in Egypt and didn't achieve much and start to get absolutely hammered. And vast numbers of Italians were captured by small numbers of British. And in fact, that's why we've got quite a large Italian population in South Africa, because Many of the prisoners of war came here uh, to South Africa and many decided to stay and settle. So uh, Germany, in order to help the Italian allies out, um, uh, uh, gave the task to General Erwin Rommel, well known as uh, one of the fastest advancing record-breaking uh, panzer leaders in the uh, operation in, on the Western Front, which uh, took France and defeated the British and French armies there. So Owen Rommel is given a task to form a new corps, the Africa Corps, a very small corps, more like a, a nominal um, a force in order to uh, show the Italians that, you know, they're being allies and they're going to help. But this is a diversion of some manpower and some resources to Africa, which was needed to concentrate on the threat from the Soviet Union, but nevertheless, uh, a good force, uh, even if it was very small, was sent out to Africa under Erwin Rommel. We're talking about February 1941. That's interesting because Hollywood has the Africa Corps established and in Egypt, interestingly, in 1930s, according to the uh, in ridiculous Indiana Jones um, series, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and so on and, and uh, the Last Crusade, they've got the Africa Corps running around 1930s, years before it was formed with their uh, Second World War um, uniforms. And for some strange reason, um, in British territory, uh, with armoured cars and tanks and everything, including in Jordan and Palestine and in Egypt, which, you know, completely ahistoric. And uh, 
I remember my father commenting about those, uh, how they portrayed the Africa Corps as, as evil. He said they were gentlemen. They were Christian gentlemen and uh, honorable people. And uh, it was terrible that uh, they've got the Spielberg Hollywood nonsense, which has now used Africa Corps uniform and name, suggesting that there was some kind of evil, occultic, demonic, wicked thing. And uh, it just shows the kind of nonsense that Hollywood comes out with. And yet the Africa Corps only started February 1941. The khaki uniform didn't exist before that, and they didn't have an African presence before 1941, which makes the whole ridiculous Indiana Jones uh, and Temple of Doom um, and um, uh, Last Crusade and all of that, just look, Raiders Lost Ark, um, completely ahistorical in every sense. So here you've got, in March 1941, a 104-page book published by American Zionist businessman named Theodore Kaufman. This was published in America, and the title was Germany Must Perish, with an exclamation mark. 1941, in America. Kaufman calls for the complete extermination of German people through forced sterilization, total dismemberment, reapportioning of German territory, so that uh, the northern part of Germany would fall to Holland, the southern part to France, uh, the eastern part to Poland and Czechia, and uh, that uh, Germany would cease to exist as a country and the people would end up being slaves and sterilized. And this murderous hate fest started out in the very beginning. I mean, here's the first lines of this book of Germany Must Perish, which is published in America in March 1941. This dynamic volume outlines a comprehensive plan for the extinction of the German nation and the total eradication from the earth of all her people. All to contend herein is a map illustrating the possible territorial dissection of Germany and the apportionment of her lands. Now, this is while America is meant to be neutral, and this hateful book is actually reviewed positively by Time magazine, Washington Post, and the New York Times. And it was widely distributed, not just in America, but even in Germany, because Germany Must Perish was read throughout Germany, and uh, propaganda minister Dr. Joseph Goebbels stated, thanks to the Jew Kaufman, we Germans know only too well what to expect in the case of defeat. And so the Germany Must Perish book inspired Germans to fight harder and longer uh, to the very end because they realized what the goal was if they lost. And uh, very interesting that this in 1941, March 1941, uh, published by uh, a Jewish publishing house and promoted by Jewish newspapers, this led to Hitler's decision to intern Jews in occupied Europe into wartime work camps later in 1941 because they were seen as a potential threat, especially as partisans, terrorists, and so on. So all of this goes along with Judea declares war in Germany in 1933, and uh, it's, it's quite plain. Uh, up to this point, no Jews have been interred in any camps, but it's books like this uh, that uh, will lead to that. 1941, Britain's running short of arms and supplies, and Germany's continuing to offer peace on terms favorable to Britain. But Churchill won't listen to reason because behind the scenes, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is assuring him that the United States will support Britain at all costs. And with his successful re-election campaign out of the way, end of 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt becomes more bolder in confronting anti-war isolationists, as he wants to call them, in Britain. And now Britain uh, is to be bolstered with the Lend-Lease program. And the Lend-Lease program, which was neither Lend-Law-Lease, it was something very different, but the program 
placed the awesome military might of the United States of America at the disposal of Britain, China, and later the Soviet Union. In fact, Soviet Union started to get massive aid long before Pearl Harbor, long before America was formally involved in the war, and South Africa paid for it with South African gold. The South African Prime Minister, uh, who was James Barry Herzog, so popular, he'd won five elections in a row. Uh, he is unbeaten. Uh, he had beaten the Yanni Smuts, who was an empire person, um, in the previous five elections, and he was unassailable, 15 years Prime Minister of South Africa. And James Barry Herzog flat refused to declare war on Germany, saying it had nothing to do with South Africa. And South Africa is not going to declare war on their previous enemy, on their previous ally, and help their previous enemy. Uh, we have not forgotten uh, the British concentration camps of the Anglo-Boer War, he stated. Well, our prime minister in South Africa was just ousted uh, by coup d'etat, and Jan Smuts, who had lost the previous five elections, became prime minister of South Africa without an election, without even a referendum. And then the first instruction from Churchill term was get all the gold above ground in South Africa over to Simonstown, loaded onto an American battle cruiser, uh, the USS Quincy, which is being sent out by FDR. And when America receives that gold in New York, then Lend-Lease will flow. So this is another secret aspect uh, that uh, was not known uh, during the war, but uh, now we know it, um, that literally the... South African gold paid for Lend-Lease. America didn't do anything for free. And Britain didn't only benefit from this Lend-Lease, but so did Stalin's Soviet Union. So the arsenal for democracy mostly went to fund the worst dictatorship on the planet, Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. And we're talking about uh, Britain got over $31 billion worth, and that's 1940s money. We're talking about over $500 billion in uh, today's prices, that went to Britain, and vastly more than that went to the Soviet Union. And that was so-called Lend-Lease. The difference was Britain paid for hers and continued to pay for decades and generations to come. You know, the Soviet Union didn't pay a ruble, not a penny. Uh, the Soviet Union got their Lend-Lease free. Britain had to pay. And in the case of Britain, it was mostly the South African gold that's paid for it without the Southern people being consulted or requested. So we had the ridiculous situation of the Soviet Union being run by a dictator, Britain being run by someone who wasn't elected, and South Africa being run by someone who wasn't elected. And they were the so-called democracies, which makes you sort of wonder, because how democratic is a dictatorship like Stalin's? Nevertheless, I mean, mustn't let facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, in April the 6th, 1941, uh, unrelated to Germany's war, Mussolini's adventure in Greece created a big problem for Germany because the Greeks gave stiff resistance and the British troops poured into Greece to strengthen them and to give them more aid. And so Germany immediately offered to negotiate between Italy and Greece. But the Greeks wouldn't come to the table because more British troops were arriving and they were benefiting a lot. And so in March 1941, Yugoslavia joined Germany's tripartite pact and an anti-communist pact but at the same moment, the British intelligence, especially um, SOE or uh, the special office um, uh, uh, of special office executive in Britain, uh, triggered a coup d'état which overthrew the Yugoslav government. And uh, Yugoslavia went from being a German ally to being a British puppet state 
which immediately signed a treaty of friendship with the Soviet Union, with Stalin's Soviet Union, and Stalin's Yugoslav communists took to the streets and supported the new government and forced Germany to act because Germany could not allow Yugoslavia right next to Romania and uh, the oil fields that Germany depended on its only real source of oil in the whole time of the war. And therefore, with British troops in Greece and heading towards Yugoslavia, in fact, there really were British SAE in Yugoslavia, with the Soviet Union being allied with Yugoslavia, Germany had to do something very fast. And so on the 6th of April 1941, the Germans invaded both Yugoslavia and Greece, and it was a very quick, blitzkrieg, efficient operation, and uh, with very little loss of life, thankfully. And uh, the globalist media simplistically just portrayed these events as Germany invades Yugoslavia and Greece. No mention of the provocation, the context, the strategic scenario that required this necessary. And so British troops, mostly Australians actually, based in Egypt, were already pouring from Egypt into uh, Greece from, by April 1941. And so Germany had to secure southeastern Europe, particularly dealing with the threats in Yugoslavia and then in Greece, uh, in order to secure uh, its southern and southeastern frontier. Uh, but now the valuable time had been lost in terms of dealing with the Soviet Union because summer's moving on, winter's going to come, and uh, it was at this point, the 10th of May, 1941, that the deputy Führer, Rudolf Hess, flew to Scotland and parachuted. First time he'd parachuted in his life, at night, parachuting to Scotland with another dramatic offer of peace. So Rudolf Hess, close friend of Adolf Hitler, um, the most Anglophile member of the German government because he was born under the British flag in Egypt. He was raised speaking English in, in Egypt. And so Rudolf Hess is fluent in English, and uh, he's right in the upper echelon of the National Socialist Party. He's the deputy Führer in Germany. And so he flew a solo mission to Scotland, parachuted in, carrying offers of peace, which we've had a whole program dealing with that on um, uh, Rudolf Hess and the real, real turning point in World War II, where what he is basically offering uh, is that the uh, Germany will withdraw from all countries occupied in the West in exchange for uh, peace with Britain and asking for a free hand in the East. In other words, let us deal with the Soviet Union without having to worry about any threat to our rear on the Western Front. So everything that was achieved by the end of the Second World War in the West could have been achieved at even this point in May 1941 without a single British or American needing to die uh, in the Western Front. And you think of all the lives that could have been spared, the over 100,000 Frenchmen who died in the aerial bombardments of uh, France in the so-called liberation of France after D-Day and so on, and all the people killed in uh, Belgium and Netherlands with all the bombing campaigns and everything, a bridge too far, all of that could have been spared if they'd taken Hesse's peace offer. And yet Rudolf Hess, despite being unarmed in an unarmed plane, an emissary of peace coming over as a parliamentarian, as, a, as a, a, a peace negotiator, he was not accorded the ambassadorial um, courtesies. He was not treated as a, a person bringing a peace offer. Uh, he was treated as not even a prisoner of war, but as a criminal. And the last person locked up in the Tower of London, too, for a time. And he was put in Spandau prison for the rest of his life 
where he was ultimately murdered at age 93 when the Soviet Union was collapsing and Gorbachev was talking about, we can let Hess go free now. And obviously, he must have had something to uh, reveal and the British must have had something to hide uh, because uh, shortly after that, he was plainly murdered and they called it a suicide despite him being 93 years old arthritic and he's meant to have ripped up this noose and lifted his hands above his head, which he couldn't do actually. Uh, medical uh, reports claim that basically the man could not have done what he's meant to have done to have hung himself at age 93 uh, when he was uh, so limited in his health. And quite aside from the fact that the uh, pattern of the strangulation was compatible with a person being strangled, not hung, because it was a straight line as opposed to the V. And uh, uh, they're experts who have been uh, convinced he was murdered. But that's another story. So that takes us to May 1941. Before Germany deals with the Soviet Union, they are offering another peace with the, with the West, with Britain, offering basically everything that was achieved by the end of the Second World War, but without the need for any more loss of life in the next years. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is increasing his provocation of Germany and Japan, escalating it regularly. Long before the Polish-German conflict in 1939, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been waging a silent war against Germany. And FDR was desperate to drag uh, America into Britain's war. He relentlessly baited Hitler. Uh, America impounded all German ships, sunk German submarines, frozen German uh, and Japanese financial assets. <clears throat> <clears throat> assisted the British Navy in spotting and sinking Italian and um, different ships. The Americans assisted the British in finding and sinking the Bismarck, which killed over 2,200 German sailors, and shipped vast quantities of weaponry to Britain. Now, Germany knew about all this, but they bore these provocations quietly knowing that American entry into the war would be disastrous because of the huge amounts of industrial might that they'd bring with it. And um, therefore, Germany was under strict instructions, all their forces not to engage in any military actions with the Americans, no matter what their provocation. And despite coming under fire uh, from the American Navy and so on, no U-boats would respond. And so FDR decided to shift his tactics from baiting Germany to start the war with them to baiting the Japanese. And so an attack on one is an attack on all, so FDR turned the tripartite pact against the Soviet Union to their advantage. And as Germany and Britain were exhausting one another in the air and sea and North Africa, Stalin was massing his huge red army along the German eastern frontier near the Romanian oil fields that was vital for Germany's supply. And Hitler knew that Stalin couldn't be trusted. Stalin had already broken his non-aggression pacts with Finland and with Poland, and uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union had plans to invade the whole of Europe. And so knowing that there were other non-aggression pacts uh, with the, the Baltic states, the Soviets invade Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and then Eastern Romania. So he couldn't trust them. And with the communists supporting the coup d'etat in Yugoslavia against German ally, all of this combined to offer still more proof Stalin was planning something seriously aggressive. Now, according to the narrative we've all been given since we were born, uh, Germany treacherously and without any provocation attacked their friend and ally, the Soviet Union. 
And that's actually not so. The launch of Operation Barbarossa 22 June 1941 uh, was a preemptive strike against the Soviet Union, who at that moment were massing their forces on their borders for colossal invasion of Europe, uh, believing that Germany was so distracted by the battles in North Africa and the uh, British bombings of their land and with the sea blockade and with the threat, potential threat to the Western Front. And so 65% of all Soviet tanks, field guns, machine guns, anti-tank guns were all in right on the border facing uh, uh, German-controlled Europe and German allies such as Romania. And in just a matter of days, the German army had destroyed virtually the entire Soviet weaponry. 65% of all Soviet tanks, field guns, machine guns, anti-tank guns were destroyed or captured. And the German army routed the Red Army all the way back to the gates of Moscow, liberating millions of cheering Ukrainians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, even Russian people were, were cheering and applauding and welcoming them with open arms because of the brutality of the Soviet Union. And yet, because of the two-month delay due to Mussolini's invasion of Greece and uh, of the Yugoslav uh, campaign because of the British coup there, this probably saved Stalin's regime from total collapse in 1941 because that two months delay in spring and summer uh, gave the Soviet Union the extra time they needed because it's a huge distance from uh, Germany's border all the way through to Moscow. And uh, uh, the um, Soviet intelligence officer and historian Viktor Suvorov defected to Britain and published several books about Stalin's plan to attack Germany and Britain. And so this wasn't exactly a secret. It's been suppressed, but it's a fact that the uh, Soviet Union was planning to invade uh, uh, the whole of Europe. And so Adolf Hitler, on the 12th of, of uh, the 11th, um, made the statement already in 1940, it became increasingly clear from month to month that the plans of the men in the Kremlin were aimed at the domination and the destruction of all of Europe. I've already told the nation of the buildup of Soviet military power in the East during a period where Germany had only a few divisions in the provinces bordering the Soviet Union. Only a blind person could fail to see that a military buildup of world historical dimensions was being carried out, the largest in history. And this was not in order to protect something that was threatened, but rather to attack that which seemed incapable of defense. I must say this today. If the wave of more than 20,000 tanks, hundreds of divisions, over 300 divisions that Soviets had on the Eastern Front, tens of thousands of artillery pieces, along with more than 10,000 military aircraft, if we had not kept these from being set into motion against the Reich, all of Europe would have been lost. And so that is... Uh, an explanation uh, from Germany at that time. Well, with Stalin's evil empire facing extinction at the hands of German forces in Operation Barbarossa, and not just German forces, there were volunteers from all over Europe. There were people from even neutral countries like Spain and Sweden and Switzerland, volunteers had come through to join. There were over half a million non-German foreign volunteers, including large numbers of Belgians and French and Norwegians and others who were in Operation Barbarossa in this great European crusade to defend Europe against the Soviet Union. What nobody could have anticipated, uh, because it would have been unthinkable, was that the United States would start shipping military weaponry, high-tech weaponry, aircraft, fighters, bombers, tanks, vast amounts of it, 
billions and billions and billions of dollars worth uh, to the Soviet Union. In fact, um, the Americans were using the so-called arsenal of democracy, which is meant to be uh, to aid free countries in the West, uh, to actually aid the worst dictatorship in all of history, Stalin's Soviet Union. So the arsenal of democracy became the arsenal of communism. And this included 11,000 aircraft, 4,000 bombers, 400,000 trucks, 12,000 tanks and combat vehicles, armored cars, 32,000 motorcycles, 13,000 locomotives and railway cars, 8,000 anti-aircraft cannon, 135,000 submachine guns, 300,000 tons of explosives, 40,000 field radios, 400 radar systems, 400,000 metal cutting machine tools, several millions of tons of food, steel, oil, gasoline, chemicals, without this colossal infusion of American aid, which was funded by South African Gold, the Operation Barbarossa would have certainly finished off Stalin by, if not the end of 1941, at least by the beginning of 1942. And so uh, at this time, Stalin was mobilizing all the trade unions to mobilize a partisan terrorist activities behind enemy lines, and much of it to atrocities to be done in by Soviet commandos dressed in German uniforms, carrying out false flag atrocities against his own people to help incite hatred against the enemy. And communist partisans were mostly Jewish, aided by the OSS, which is a forerunner to the CIA, and by British SAE, used false flag tactics and attacking troops uh, uh, on leave and people in civilian areas, uh, ambushing to make it difficult to tell the difference between the enemy and the civilian and this huge support, especially from the Jewish community, for the non-uniform partisans, which were effectively terrorists, to use our terms today, uh, led to the reactions and counteractions, which often are reported without giving the context of who was actually being dealt with. The impression often given is people were targeted just for being Jews instead of for being communist partisans and so on. And... At the same time, the Soviets unleashed horror against the Volga Germans, which was, there were hundreds of thousands of Germans who uh, dated back from days of Catherine the Great, who lived in, in Russia. And Catherine the Great, remember, was, was fully German. And so they had lived, lived for centuries in, in Russia, but they were suddenly stripped of the land, stripped of the houses, stripped of citizenship, shipped into uh, Siberia to work in NKVD slave labor camps in the Gulag Archipelago. And uh, the uh, atrocities of the Soviets against Germans, of course, led to more of the understanding of what we are dealing with. So in this uh, war against the uh, Soviet Union, which is a war of civilization, here you're seeing a massive clash of civilizations. And uh, the picture that we've got of America being dragged into the war uh, against its will is not accurate. The American government had connived for the war. And, and did everything they could to provoke the war. And it's also false to say that Russia was treacherously attacked uh, without provocation, and, and it was a total surprise, which is nonsense. And especially the secret war, which we've had a program on too, by Max Hastings, which makes use of all the decrypts and uh, files that were sealed for over 60 years from uh, Ultra and so on, G GCHQ, where... Uh, Britain knew, in fact, the Soviet Union knew, and Britain informed the Soviet Union, and in fact, Stalin's intelligence agency was bigger and and more encompassing and actually better than all the other intelligence agencies in the world put together at that time, 1940s. And they knew with uh, 
full detail, all Germany's preparations on the Eastern Front. And so there was nothing surprise about Operation Barbarossa. The Soviets knew well ahead of time, and uh, they had traitors within the German armed forces, communists there. Uh, the British were reading all Germany's uh, transcripts sent by the um, Enigma code machine, and they'd already cracked the code. And so they were able to inform the Soviets, their allies, um, uh, during this war, uh, already ahead of time. So there was nothing surprise attack whatsoever about uh, Operation Barbarossa. And this idea of, you know, someone stabbing in the back Stalin uh, is a real myth because Stalin was the one who just stabbed in the back all of his neighbors from Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Romania, all of those. And so uh, plainly what we've seen in modern depiction of Second World War is villainizing the victims and victimizing the villains. There's lots more to follow, but let me hand back to you at this point, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's fascinating information. How far in do you think that you are? Because this is a tremendous series. Yes, well, um, we, we've we got at least uh, two more sections, I'd say, uh, section seven, section eight, uh, to follow. So I think we might be able to finish this in another two. But uh, because this is the biggest event of the 20th century, which has affected us dramatically, which reshaped the world into the shape we're seeing now. In fact, the United Nations, the League of Nations, these all came out of the Second World War. The Cold War came out of the Second World War. And uh, the the communist uh, reality that uh, had wiped out 160 million of its own citizens in the latter half of the 20th century, all of these flew, flowed out of the Second World War. So it's certainly important for us to note, and that's why I think the bad war is a good term. Whoever called it the good war was not being honest. Back to you, Andrew. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's amazing all the different things that uh, you can pick up from that book and, you know, things that I wasn't aware of. And um, your presentation, as I say, is excellent. So this is, I think, the longest series that we've done, but there's absolutely no hurry in finishing it. I'd rather that you got everything out that you wanted to. And I think that this will be a keeper. This is the sort of thing that uh, we'll find in a few years popping up on places like Odyssey and BitChute. So folks, if you're out there and you... Um, you know, like to do those sort of things. I don't have copyright on this. So, you know, we get the information out to you. You know that this is one of those books that they uh, have really censored heavily. Um, I think that came down at the same time as um, my book, Synagogue of Satan, did on Amazon. And I was in discussion with Mike. He, he asked um, if I knew anywhere else to, to, to put the book. And we, we, we sort of communicated about that, I believe, by email. Um, but he's in the situation now when you look at the link in the post for this show that uh, it's pretty much the only place you can get it is directly from Mike himself but he has got a great big bundle of all his books that you can get in PDF for about $25, $30 something like that which is a, a great deal um, I prefer obviously hard copy and things like that but the difference in yes. price I imagine with shipping one of the books hard copy is going to be more than that so you might want to look at that and investigate the possibilities of something <coughs> like a ebook reader, a Kindle, something like that. Of course, you could read PDFs on your computer. I do prefer to read books in hard copy, but, uh, you know, you pay the money for that, as, as we all know. So uh, please support, obviously, uh, Peter's ministry and also support uh, Mike's uh, website, which is realhistorychan.com. I'm just going to confirm that that is correct. I have to type it in because, uh, you know, if there's any slight uh, deviation on that, then the search engine now is not going to tell you where you want to go because they don't want you to go there, as we all know. So um, here we go. Dot com. 
Yeah, it looks like I got it right. So it's realhistorychan.com, realhistorychan.com. Link in the post for the show to where you can get the offer on the PDF books. Bernie does a tremendous amount of work. Uh, Peter, we've got a few minutes left, so... um, Let's, is there anything, uh, any sort of news updates? Uh, I remember last week you, you spoke to, to the audience about the problems that you had on a peaceful protest in South Africa. And uh, did you get any follow-up on that? Because I know that you were going to write to the authorities concerned. Yes, and uh, we, we are also heading towards a municipal elections, our first municipal elections in five years. In fact, over five years, they're really overdue. And they were trying to delay it more in the name of COVID, but the... Uh, uh, constitutional court here did tell them they were out of time and they had to hold it uh, before the 1st of November uh, or be in contempt of court. And so we're heading towards municipal elections. I've actually been uh, getting out voters' guides, which we've been doing for 30 years, uh, evaluating the parties on eight key biblical principles. And this year we've also added on uh, the savotersguide.org, SA for South Africa. So savotersguide.org, we've got also where they stand on lockdowns, masks, and vaccine passports, and how parties in South Africa stand as far as self-determination and independence or secession for the Western Cape. So uh, we've actually got several of these um, uh, links there on on this website that's helping guide our people. But interestingly, people who were following up on our previous protests against the lockdown lunacy and the masquerade madness and the vaccine passport uh, requirements uh, were attacked by riot police this last Saturday. So this last Saturday, um, it was a peaceful group. Um, I was not there um, because I didn't even know that this was planned. This was just more spontaneous, it seems, at the same venue where we've spoken on several previous demonstrations uh, in the Seapoint Promenade. So it's a big open area somewhat you know, on the on the coast and um, you know, overlooking the harbour and uh, a lot of green areas where people walk their dogs and so on. And um, uh, next thing, the riot police turn up and with big riot shield, looking like the Roman curved uh, rectangular shields and water cannon. And they just came and they started wading in and hitting mothers and grandmothers and uh, grandfathers and you know people holding their children, still getting whacked, blood f- flowing. You can actually see the, the videos of this literally with people having their um, arms bleeding, faces bleeding, people bleeding from the eye, uh, head injuries. And there was no provocation. The only justification given by the uh, riot police was that the protesters weren't wearing masks. Now, considering they were protesting against the masks, it would seem to be unreasonable to expect the protesters to wear masks. <laughs> and we do have uh, laws giving every member of South Africa the right to protest peacefully. And uh, there was no violence uh, except from the police. The riot police came in and were obviously unleashed on uh, these folks because they just, and nobody saw it coming. They they assumed, well, we've been peaceful. They'll just like stand there and look at us. And uh, before they knew it, um, people were absolutely shocked uh, at being treated like this. Now, we've, we've come to expect this now from the Australians, uh, but this seemed quite shocking. It's the first time I've seen uh, riot police being unleashed on people protesting masks and mandatory vaccinations uh, in South Africa. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's definitely hotting up all around the world. And folks, if you reflect on what Peter talked us through today with MS King's The Bad War, 
And you look at all the nefarious things that were going on behind the scenes, you know, rigging an election so FDR would get in, uh, knowing that the American people didn't want to go into World War II, but they are going to go in because we, the powers that should not be, want them to. Uh, the peace missions that were made, all these different things that are all covered up and you're not told about. And this is going back 80 years, okay? So if this was the sort of deception that they were giving to you 80 years ago, we talked about before the Balfour Declaration, well, that wasn't made public in England or the UK until, I think, believe, 1920. It was certainly mm. after the war. And why was that? Because... They knew that if the British soldiers thought that they were fighting for that rather than what they told them they were fighting for, they probably wouldn't be so willing to go and die for that. Um, so the deception, it goes on for centuries. And I think we've just ramped up now to this nonsense with uh, trying to force this vaccine, which we know it is, and we haven't got time to get into that now. You know, just be vigilant. If you want to get it, you have to make your own decision. But I've been extremely sceptical of my government and governments around the world for years based upon what I've studied. Um, and, you know, when you look at events like World War II, an in-depth look that we've done with other books that Peter mentioned. And, of course, don't forget, folks, that whilst I only store the last month worth of shows on my website, there is always a link in the uh, show that uh, Peter and I do each week where he's got pretty much the full archive of everything we've done together. You know these shows are largely topic-based and so they're going to be as fresh now as they were when we released them. So have a look down that list, have a look at that link and you may find things that uh, you didn't hear first time round that you would like to hear now. So that being said, before we go, Peter, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, my personal email address is peter at frontline.org.za, or as Americans would say, CA. So peter at frontline.org.za. Uh, that's my email. And our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline Mission SA, SA for, for South Africa. Frontline Mission SA.org, that's our website. And you'll find a whole lot of resources and what we're doing and uh, missions behind the lines include some videos and powerpoints and uh, all the rest of it evangelistic materials too uh, so you'll even find in other languages as well uh, behind the different um, flags and, and uh, maps on the website so very international frontline mission sa.org thank you so much andrew Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic study as always. And um, uh, check out Peter's other websites as well uh, that are in the post for this show each week. I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. We'll be back with you again next week. I want to thank all of you for listening. You've been listening to part six of The Bad War. Have a wonderful day. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, folks.